Welcome to Journey South Bay. Thank you for inviting us in to listen to God's Word. Take a moment to get comfortable, sit back, and relax as we listen to today's message. If you're able to, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Nagab. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Nagab as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And at the time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right, or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. We are in a series on the life of Abraham, and Abraham is a man who, uh, he was not looking for God. There was nothing in his life that was spiritually uh, yearning for something. Um, he may be like someone like you this morning. He was just dragged somewhere, and all of a sudden, God just meets him, and he has a real encounter with God, and we know he has a real encounter with God because there are two things that are in his life already in the text. One he has, he has incredible failure. You, you know you've had an encounter with God if, if there is failure in and around your life. What do I mean? Look, anybody who has met the real God, it, it's way more like a rock uh, or a dam being broken and waters rushing out than it is like somebody who has experienced something and comes back and is 100% moral. Like, if there's no mistakes and there's no failure in your life, 
almost all the time, you've never met the real God. You've just changed some behaviors. But Abraham has this incredible failure that happens in the end of chapter 12 that we'll get back to. But he also has something that drastically changes, and that's his relationship to all of his livestock, to all of his wealth, and to all of his possessions. He's been set free. Have you? Everything that you own, everything that you're living for, everything that you're holding on to for the rest of your life, does it own you or, or do you own it? Have you been set free from that? Because what God wants to do is meet you in this text and ask you that question, have you been set free? And so let's ask that and learn that by seeing three things in the text. One, Lot's land. Two, Abram's ask. And three, God's gift. First, Lot's land. Look, this whole text is about land. I mean, in the first two verses, we learn that uh, Abram has come back from Egypt Uh, And then in verse 2, we learn that he's uh, getting uh, very wealthy. Uh, It says uh, he's very rich. He's got lots of livestock, uh, lots of animals. And, and, you know, in ancient Near East, uh, when you got wealthy, it wasn't that your bank account grew or your 401k grew. It's that you just, you you grew cattle. You grew animals. You grew the ability to accrue a significance and influence uh, and, and be able to trade. And it also says in verse 5 that the same thing is happening to his nephew Lot, that Lot is as well getting wealthy and rich. And then what we learn in verse 6 and 7 is that they're dwelling in this land, that they're both getting wealthy, and the cattle are growing, and all of a sudden they're growing it to the point that the land can't hold the both of them. And a quarrel is breaking out, and a fight is breaking out. And what's happening with the significance of land is it's not just, hey, uh, we can't f- both fit here. It's that our future is at stake here. See, land in the ancient Near East, we care actually a great deal about it here in Southern California, but not to the same degree that the people in the ancient Near East did. Because land in the ancient Near East, w- w- it was everything. It was your future. It was your security. It meant that you were going to be okay when you got older. It meant your children were going to be okay. It meant your family line was going to be okay. It meant people were going to survive. And then people could thrive. And that is all of a sudden in jeopardy because the two of them can't both dwell in this land. And what happens as they begin to settle it, there are, we see right away there's two ways to go about settling it. One is in the way of the world and one is in the way of God. And what we see with Lot is Lot goes in the way of the world. In verse 13, it says this, that the people of Sodom were wicked and sinners against the Lord. Now, almost every commentator, when it says this, is not trying to lay it on Sodom and just say, you know, by the way, those are the worst people that we've seen so far in the Bible. What it is, is it's making a comment about Lot's choice, that when Lot goes and picks this particular part of the land that he wants, right up next to Sodom, the commentators are saying that Lot is making a very worldly choice. Now, what's his worldly choice? Here's his worldly choice. Lot has three relationships, a relationship with his God, a relationship with his uncle, and a relationship to his stuff. And he looks out at this land, and 
it's not exactly living up to the promise that they were told. Like God says, I'm going to give you this land, and he takes him to Canaan, and they go. And it's a bit like your father saying, I bought you a new car. And you run out to the backyard, and you see this thing that's up on cinder blocks, and the engine is sitting on the sidewalk. You wonder, how in the world is this in any way reflective of your goodness and your love and your provision? And so Lot looks at these two couple things. And when push comes to shove, he will choose his possessions over his uncle and his God. Now, why? It's very easy to look at this and say, ah, worldliness, we're just obsessed with materialism. Uh, I'm not like that. But but let's not be so quick to hype on and, and, and hate on Lot for this. Because this is what it says. In verse 10, when Lot was looking out over all the land... He saw this section of land in the Jordan of the valley. And what this was, was uh, the, lot, the land that they had been given was up on a hill. And the two sides of the hill were very desolate, uh, very dead. But down in the valley, it dips. If you go there now, it dips about 20 miles. And there's a section down there by the Jordan River that's actually very fertile. It's very green. It's way more opportunistic. And he looks at it and he sees, this is the chance for my future This is the chance for security. This is the chance for wealth. This is a chance for opportunity. And he says, that's going to be mine. And before you go, ah, he's just like everybody else on Wall Street or everybody else in the downtown financial district. It says this, when he saw it, he said it was like the garden of the Lord. Robert Alter, who is, uh, I think he's still a professor of Hebrew at Berkeley University. He's probably the leading scholar in the world on ancient Near Eastern uh, Hebrew narrative, uh, has a commentary on this. And he says, in the text when it says that Lot lifted up his eyes and saw this, it's, it's not literal commentary as if uh, Lot was looking down and he looked up and then he saw the land. He says it's a metaphor for something that's happening to his heart. That when his heart sees this land and he makes this comment, this is like the garden of the Lord. It's not literally like Eden, because he'd never seen it. But He's saying there's something very profound going on in Lot. That at the bottom of the human heart, what it is, is we all know there was a place where we were once meant for. And in that place, we were content. We knew who we were, we were loved, we were okay. Everything was fine. We knew he had a future. We knew we were provided for. We didn't worry about what you had. There was no envy. There was no strife. There was no insecurity. There was none of that. And it was found in the garden of the Lord. And almost every single time in life that you see something that feels like it promises you life, that it will give you that security, it will give you everything that you wanted, there is a, there's a part of your heart that is crying out that says, this is like the whisper of the garden of the Lord that we all do this. Uh, as Christy Bieber, uh, she's a lawyer and contributor to MSNBC. USA Today has got um, an article where she talks about uh, financial mistakes that people make uh, in the housing market. She says, we have a huge tendency, uh, more and more and more in American culture, to, uh, to want to live in a house or live in a property that's way outside of our ability to afford it. She says, before we go off just uh, hating on American culture and materialism, she's like, why do we do this? 
She said, because the language that we use when we talk about pursuing these things is the language called a dream home. She says, why do we call it a dream home? She says, dream homes often lead people to make financial decisions when buying or building that they quickly come to regret. When you have an ideal of a perfect property and you buy into the concept of a dream home, it's blinding how quickly one justifies spending much more than they originally intended. Why? It's to make dreams come true. It's not just a house that they're after. It's a home that can let the heart rest. You can now walk through a door and say you've done it. You've arrived. You've showed them. I truly hope your heart doesn't blind you into regret. Look, when, when you say the main thing that you're after in life or you're saving for is a house, or the main thing that you really want is your children just to be okay, or the main thing that you really want is, is just to get married, you know what she's saying and you know what Robert Alter is saying in this text is putting out, is that's not just what you want. There's something below it that you're desperate for, that you're saying, if I get this, if I get that house, if I get that property, if I get that job, if my children get into that college, then I'll be okay. Then I I will finally taste the contentment and the peace that I've been begging for in life. And we all do it. And this is what Lot is after. That when he sees this, and how quickly he is willing to forsake his uncle and to walk away from his God, it's it's not just because he wants money. It's because he thinks this land, this thing, will finally give him everything that he's made for. And you know what? You and I do it too. I'll give you some examples of this. Um, Okay, if if you're in high school, or in junior high. Ask yourself this question for real quick. Why do you really want to be popular? Like, why do you really want to fit in? What, why do you really, really, really want those people to like you? Because 99 times out of 100, those people who you want to like you, you get to know them and you realize, I actually don't really like them. But all the while, when we want those people to like us and include us, you know what we we are so quick to do? We will walk away from our faith. We will walk away from our integrity. And the people who we knew before them, we are very quick to throw them aside and sell them out if they're not going to help us get into that group. Do you know why you do that? It's, It's not just because you want those people. It's because you want what those people will give you, which is the the approval, the inclusion the ability to say, I, I am lovable. I, I am that great. Here's another one, parents. Your children. Look, the Bible says to love your children, to provide for your children, to protect your children, but it never says to give your life for your children and to make them your life. Why are we so prone to do this? Look, if you're a believer, you've got a relationship with your children, with your church, and your God. And it's incredible in Southern California how quickly people are willing to sacrifice the latter two to make sure the first one, my children, get what they want. 
that they will get into that college, that they will get that career, that they will get that social life, that they will get those things, I'm willing to throw those things aside to make sure they get that. You know why you want that? It's because you think when they get that, I'll get a whisper of the Garden of Eden. If you say, what's wrong with that? Look, here's what happens to Lot. It says in verse 13, there's this incredible irony that Lot looked up and he saw this. And the, the narrator here is giving us incredible irony because you know what he looked up and saw he didn't see. Because he puts his land, he picks this land that's right next to Sodom. But what happens in the next chapter, in chapter 14, is he's not just next to Sodom, he's living in Sodom. And then what you see a couple chapters later, he's not just living in Sodom, he's a part of Sodom, and he can't get out. And you know what? It's a metaphor for this is how idolatry works. The thing that you so want, that you're sure, if I get this, this will give me life. You don't own it, it owns you. And when it grabs a hold of you, it's not just something that can coexist with your God and the thing that you want, your family and this, your relationship with God and this. It will have you lose those things along the way to the point that you're stuck in it and you know no way out. And sadly, some of the, on the way to do that, you never even see it happening. And that's what we learn from Lot's land. But secondly... There's a way out of this, and we see it in Abraham's ask. Look in verses 8 and 9. What happens is when this dilemma comes along to the both of them, they realize they both can't live in the land. Abram comes, and he says, Let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. If you take the right, then I will go to the left. Now, what Abram is doing here is remarkable. Look, Abram has got a relationship with his God, with his nephew, and with his possessions. And there's a couple options before him. A, what he could do is he could look at Lot and he said, you know what, we can both go get rich down there together. And we will both keep our possessions, we'll keep our relationship together But this promise that God gave us, let's just forget that and walk away from that. Secondly, what he could do is, because he's in a patriarchal society, it would not be rude, it would not be cruel, it would not be anything out of custom for him to look at the younger uh, nephew and just say, okay, boy, see ya. I'm going to the rich place. My God is with me. And you're going to figure out this on your own. So he could lose his relationship with Lot. He could keep his money, and he could keep his relationship with God. Or what he does, the third option, which he could, he could say, I've got a relationship with you that I want to keep. I've got a relationship with my God I want to keep. And so something has to go, and it will be my possessions, and it will be my wealth. And this, this is remarkable because in a patriarchal society, it would have not been out of custom at all for Abram to look at the younger and say, look, I, I, it's my right. I have every right to pursue this land. But also, what happens in chapter 12 is Abram doubts God's promise, goes down to Egypt, and the first thing that happens is Pharaoh finds his wife Sarah attractive. 
And he realizes they may kill me for you. So please lie and tell them you're my sister. And what he essentially does is look at his own wife. And he says, you for me. But what happens in this chapter is he comes back with a less intimate relationship. And there's definitely doubt. He's returned from Egypt. And he says, you know what, Lot? Me for you. And he's willing to lose. And he's willing to look at his son, or excuse me, his nephew, and give him everything and to be set free. And here's what Abram is communicating us. Here's how you become set free in this world with your possessions and everything you're living for. You start thinking of yourself in this world not like a guest, but a host. Let me explain. Look, some of you have had uh, uh, Becky and I into your home. It's amazing. Uh, And every single time we go to somebody's house, it's always a humbling experience. Because when when you walk in as a guest... People are just, can I get you something to eat? Uh, can, can I, you know, would you want anything to drink? People are going out of their way to do anything they can to make this experience wonderful for you. When you're a host, I mean, you look at people and you say, like, I'm willing to spend my afternoon cleaning up, preparing, spending money, doing anything to make you feel loved and welcomed and a part of this. When you're a guest, you don't do anything. You just receive. But a host says, hey, I'm willing to sacrifice everything so that you and I can experience this wonderful thing together. And Abram is doing that with his future, with his inheritance, with everything that you and I build our life on and think this is how we're going to be okay. But when he does it, hear this, he doesn't ache, he's set free. It's like he's broken through to a whole new way of living life by putting his future in jeopardy. And and you know why you and I have got to do this for our life going forward? It's because on the one hand, relationships... Look, some of you experience this, but if you don't let go of your possessions in your future, at some point it's going to cost you a relationship. Because you, you, all, you learn this about, about your stuff and about your future. They always have strings attached. And if your strings are attached way more to your possessions and stuff, then you will begin to lose people along the way. Now, casual relationships feel easy, but the older you get in life, the more intimate they will be that you will be challenged and willing to walk away from. Like, my mother-in-law is an estate planner, and she says it's, it's unbelievable how siblings are willing to never talk ever again debating over these things. It's because the strings are so attached to the heart of what this can give me, that relationships that have, have existed from birth, I'm willing to walk away from. And you know what? You're not free when you do that. You are enslaved to something that will never love you back and never give you the Garden of Eden. 
But the other reason that you've really got to get in touch with Abram's ask is because of how culturally subversive this is. Like, what I'm describing for you, almost everybody lives this way around us. And and the pursuit of a future, the pursuit of security, the the pursuit of safety, you know what it is? Is It's it's like flies on the screened-in porch. I mean, everybody on the outside is desperate to break in. And everybody on the inside is terrified they're going to fall out. I've got a friend here who, I'll, I'll just put it this way, he's wealthier than all of you. And he's had unbelievable financial success. And one night we were sitting um, at this restaurant late one night, it was just the two of us, and he was telling me about when he was living in Miami and, and he was at the height of it. And he said almost every night was sleepless. He said, I, I, he said, I had millions. And, and, and it wasn't like, I'm so content, thank you, that I have arrived. He said, every night I was afraid it was going to be gone tomorrow. And that's how people, like, when you get there, you're not there. You discover that the, the Garden of Eden that you thought it was is just a mirage. And the more you grasp for it, the further it gets away. But you know, what is so culturally subversive is just to cut the strings and to be set free. You know, Abram, when he lets his nephew go, he's not sad. He's free. Don't you want to be free? Look, the text gives you lots of land, Abram's ask. But thirdly, how do you get that? You see God's gift. Look, God comes to him in verse 17, and he says, Abram, rise and walk about the length of the land. Now, what is he telling him to do here? Look, in the ancient Near East, there was a legal ritual that you would do to secure land and to make it your possession. You didn't sign a contract. You didn't go meet with a lawyer uh, and exchange the checks. What you did is you walked about the outside perimeter of the land, and the walking of the two of you together legally secured it as your land. Which means this. Look, if you're skeptical, know this. Christianity does not work where God asks us to believe in a promise, and it's just like a Hallmark card where you've never heard of it, you've never seen it, but you kind of hope that that's a real thing. He says, look, my promise is real. It's concrete. Let's go walk it. You can see it. It's legally certified for you. Let's go walk about this. In the book of Hebrews, the author has a, a comment on this where he says, when Abram did this, here's what happened. Abram was walking with God and began to change his foundations. And he began to look forward to this as a city whose architect and builder was God. Because when God walks with the land with Abram, it's, it's, look, again, it's not as though they're walking on the land and Abram's like, oh, I never saw this part. It actually is fertile over here. Everything is going to be okay. It may have gotten worse and worse and worse the further that they went around. There was no part of it that looked like a future. There was no part of it that looked like wealth. There was no part of it that looked like his great, 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 great grandchildren were going to be okay in this land. 
But what the author of Hebrews says that, he, that Abram did is he was set free because he changed his foundations. Look, th- this is what it means to be a Christian. Is that as you're living in an American here, and you're living for this, and you're hoping that this comes true for you in life, that this marriage, this career, this kind of house, this future, what a Christian is, is somebody who says, I'm going to build my foundation not on that, but on the righteousness of God. And who God gives me, and what God promises for me, and what He says. And if you will do that, it it will be the most freeing thing you'll do in life. See, everybody does what Lot does. It's we see things in life, and we want the garden of the Lord, but we want the garden without the Lord. And you know what Abram does? Is when he walks with God around this, and he changes his foundations, he's essentially looking at all of us and saying, you can have all of this world, but give me my God. And you know why he's so compelled to do this? It's because of forgiveness. In chapter 12, God says, here's the promise. I will be your God and you'll be my child. Trust me. The first thing Abram does is says, there's no way this is true. And he goes to Egypt. And he risks his wife's life. And subjects her to things. And God doesn't go, you are a terrible idea. I'll go build this whole thing through somebody else. He comes right back to him. Robert Alter in his commentary, he says, like when when God comes and speaks this promise again, the syntax suggests it's not as though Abram is recalling one thing he said in the past. It's as if he comes and knocks on the door and says, let me tell you again. And God is coming and reminding and restoring Abram and telling him, you are still my son. And this promise is still true. And everything that you just did, it's paid for. It's forgiven. Let's go forward. And when when that happens, it changes Abram's foundations. Has it changed yours? Look, you don't have a God who walk around land with you, but you have something better in Jesus. There's a place in John 21. It's at the end of the Gospels, after Jesus has died and risen from the grave, and all of his disciples had left him. They'd all failed. They'd all said, I don't know who he is. Um, at the moment that their life, that their future, their security was on the line, and knowing this man on the cross, they're like, never heard of him. And Jesus comes to to Peter, first of all, who had denied him three times, and he asks him three questions. Do you love me? And the reason he asks him these questions is he's trying to say, I'm going to restore you and give you grace and forgiveness for every single time. You failed me. And then he comes to the other ones who doubted him. And he says, look, I'm not just making this up. See my hands. Touch my scars. This really happened. This is real. This is concrete. And when they experienced that, you know know what happened to the disciples? They said, you can have all of this world, but give me Jesus. Are you that free? 
Because if you're forgiven, you know what happens, what forgiveness will do, is it will say, everything that I'm living for, everything I'm building my life on, it's not worth building my life on. All I need is to know this God, and He's provided a way. Look, forgiveness is is the most transforming reality in this world, and your God offers it to you right now. There's a girl named Shannon Etheridge. Uh, When she was 16, she was driving out in a rural area, and she hit a bicyclist who happened to be a young wife and a young mom, and she killed her. It spiraled her life in depression, drugs, a cycle of just torture. Her life was going nowhere. She was miserable, thought about killing herself. And then one day, somebody knocked on the door. And it was that woman's husband. And he said, you can't keep doing this to yourself and blaming yourself and living with the guilt of this the rest of your life. He said, I forgive you. And they embraced and hugged. And Shannon said her life's never been the same since. And you know what she does today? She writes books on forgiveness and the power of it. Abram's life is just filled with failure. The next couple chapters are just, they're not going to be this admirable how to be holy like Abram. It's, It's just constant stories of pain and brokenness. But when the New Testament authors talk about him, they never bring it up. And it's not because they're glossing over it or hiding or suppressing failures. It's because they know Abram's story is now changed by a new story. And he was renewed. Have you, have you been renewed? Have you been encountered that way? Because you can right now. Be forgiven and encounter that God. Let me pray for you. Father, look, we don't want to be imprisoned. We want to love our life. We want to love what you give us. We want to love where we are, but we don't want to be enslaved by it. Would you help us, Father, to be set free by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, and to do what Abram did, to, to change our foundation and to look forward to the better city at one day where you will meet us. Lord, help, help all of us to lift up our eyes and to see, to see what we cannot see with sight, but to see it by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to the RSS podcast feed. This will let you know when a new message has been posted. You can also look for us on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram at Journey South Bay. Until next time, God bless.